Nikki Segnet, it's amazing to have you on my podcast. Your publicist got in touch with me a couple of months or so ago, and the subject matter is just electrifying. I've only only recently kind of got into cooking myself, and I'm starting to enjoy it and playing around with flavours, playing around with the ingredients. I still can't kind of bake things and really sort of make things, but I can cook things and I can use interesting combinations, and I love doing that. And so this book is such a thrill, and you don't need me to say it, but it's obviously really well written. It's got so much information there's a there's a sense of fun there's a sense of experimenting and I can't imagine why people wouldn't want to buy it actually so there you go there's my plug straight up Nikki your first book which was called is called the flavor thesaurus has sold at least a quarter of a million copies this third book actually but it's a, a sort of a, a follow-on it's a sequel but you've written another book haven't you in between this this is the sequel and it's called the flavor thesaurus more flavors this is emphasizing or focusing on largely plant-based flavors, but you don't completely exclude meat and dairy. I, I think because you say in your introduction, otherwise you get caught up in the difficulties of keeping something really strictly vegan, but it's definitely overwhelmingly plant-based. And we've got so much to talk about. I mean, we could do hundreds of questions because there are hundreds of flavors, but I'm going to start with this question and welcome to the podcast. Curious to know why you started with miso. Is that how you pronounce it? Is it miso or miso? Miso. Uh, hi, Matthew. Um, it's uh, I believe it's miso. Why did I start with miso? Yeah, because I've sort of seen a, a mini explosion of miso. I mean, mm. there's an Australian restaurant called Granger's or Granger, which I've been to quite a few times, and they do at least one, but possibly more miso dishes. So that's when it kind of first came to my attention. But also, I was in Cape Town recently, and there was a lot of miso going on there, maybe just in the hotel that I was staying in, I'm not sure. But my sense is that miso is growing as a flavour. And I'm just curious to know, as I say, why you started with it. Uh, well, it looks like I started with it. <laughs> but in fact, actually, I, uh, the, this new book, I started on Caraway. Uh, I was in the States, I was at an artist retreat in Vermont and I was looking to start the book and I didn't know what to start with. So I went to the kitchen in this, this artist retreat had the most fantastic well-stocked kitchen. And, um, and I picked up some Caraway because that's a really quite obscure ingredient to me. We don't eat a lot of Caraway in this country. Um, so I started on that, but the book starts with miso. And the reason that it does that is in, in order to explain the, the flavor thesaurus, both of them are based on Roger's thesaurus. So both of them have, the first one has a hundred ingredients. The new one, which is a volume two, it's not like an update, it's a completely different book. Uh, but the new one has 92 ingredients. And at the back, you find uh, a kind of basic index. So say you've got some you know you've got a glut of courgettes you can look up courgettes and it gives you a list of the things that are really interesting or classic pairings for that ingredient and then if you want to know more there's a page reference and you can turn to the front of the book which makes up the kind of the majority of the book and there it will tell you it will elaborate on that pairing so there's an entry for each of the pairings that will tell you about the flavor of the science or maybe about certain different ingredients uh, certain ways those ingredients are used in different countries in the world so it's a, a vast kind of treasury of um, combinations so uh, and towards the end of writing the first book I was kind of wondering whether the flavor thesaurus could be organized in an interesting and stimulating way like Roger's so obviously Roger is organized on 
philosophical themes. And that means that when when we use it, when we're using it for writing or developing our ideas, you, you turn to the front and maybe it helps you refine that idea or takes that idea in a different direction. And I was feeling that it would be just great if the flavor of the source was the same. And actually the answer presented itself was to having researched all the flavors, <clears throat> I start to understand how they overlap, how the different flavor molecules that make up flavor are common to different ingredients. So each book and the cover hints to, hints at it has like a flavor wheel as its, its only image. And around the flavor wheel, all the ingredients are arranged in a spectrum. So when you read the book, you'll understand why everything is sitting in the place that it does around the wheel and how all these flavors relate to each other. They're also subdivided into flavor families that have different names like bramble and hedge and hay, uh, grass and meadow and things like that. They're like the themes of flavors. You see that kind of language used on the back of wine labels, that kind of stuff where you can kind of group different flavor attributes. And so I have the flavor wheel, I have all my flavors arranged with it, and then I have to decide basically which one is the right one to start the book. How do I want to open the book? So in the first flavor thesaurus, it starts with chocolate. Uh, it seemed like a great idea to start with something that most people love. And it was a it's a really fun chapter and there's lots and lots to say about chocolate. And the same really goes for miso. Uh, miso is very, very flavorful. You're seeing a lot of it in restaurants because it adds so much. It's, you know, it's a fermented product. It's good for you. Um, it's kind of exciting to eat. There are different types of miso, different kind of, you know, white miso, red miso. There's barley miso, which is quite marmite-y. Um, so it's, it was just, it was a really, it's an exciting chapter. It's a great chapter to open a book that is plant-led because it provides a lot of um, umami it provides a lot of the kind of things that people tend to like about eating meat so it was you know there were a few candidates but miso was the one chocolate it features in this book as well so I, I imagine you just couldn't resist introducing chocolate here, Nikki, to give us some unusual combinations involving chocolate and the sort of tastes that we can expect from those flavours. I mean, one obvious example is chocolate and aubergine. I say obvious. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's a standout example in the book. Yeah, I mean, chocolate is very easy to pair with all sorts of ingredients, partly because you know, we think of it as being something that's sweet, but of course it's sweetened. So when you buy a tub of cocoa, that can be used for savoury food just as it much for sweet. It adds roasted notes and kind of a certain interesting bitterness to all different ingredients. Uh, in the new book, we have uh, miso and chocolate. So if you add miso to dark chocolate, say in a brownie, you kind of you're making the chocolate taste a bit more chocolatey because they're both fermented. They both have lots of similar roasty um, fruity kind of flavors, quite sort of boozy in their way. The chocolate and aubergine is an Italian combination. You know, the Italians are very good at sticking to their old combination. So, you know, centuries ago, people would make desserts with chocolate and aubergine. Let's say sliced aubergines with a chocolate sauce. You've probably eaten aubergines with honey or pomegranate molasses and things like that in, in Spain 
you know, it's not that unusual because aubergine is, after all, a fruit and it's got quite a mild flavour. It's quite easy to pair with sweet things as well as it is savoury stuff. So not everybody likes aubergine. I would say aubergine is an example of a food that is, I mean, it's not, maybe it's not Marmite, but some people will really enjoy it. Some people, many people perhaps won't. And I'm interested in the fact that you don't like mushrooms because there's a section on mushrooms, but you don't like them. So how is that writing, writing about a food that you personally don't like? Well, I have to, you know, I have to do that about combinations that I don't like as well. What I tend to do with the book is draw on a lot of voices. So, the, you know, the bibliographies are very big for both books because uh, you don't want it. Yeah, I mean, you could say this is subjective reference in a way, in the same way as David Thompson's biographical dictionary of film. You know, it's very much one person's view, but it's broadened out by uh, using other people's voices, you know, chefs, food writers, um, you know, just, uh, you know, all sorts of writers, poets. So it doesn't matter too much if I don't like something because it's more of a survey of, um, flavor combinations than just my opinion I, I mean that it has to be that in order for it to be a decent and useful book I think well good thing about not liking mushrooms there's a lot of bad things about not liking mushrooms it's a real bore but the good thing about not liking them is they're one ingredient that's written about really well and um, particularly from a flavor point of view because most ingredients most people don't write about what things taste like at all uh, but with mushrooms, because there's a, there's a need to try and describe them and make people understand what they should taste like in order not to be poisonous, there's quite a wealth of good writing about them. I don't want to leave chocolate completely behind. And I'm fascinated by the process by which chocolate beans are turned into the chocolate that ends up in our mouths. And also, similarly, what happens to coffee beans? Because you describe in the, the book that coffee beans are kind of roasted at two temperatures, I think. And some people who make coffee, some coffee makers, stop at their lower temperature in order to get a bit more of the, is it the acidity or the plantiness of, of the coffee bean into the final taste? Uh, I think there are there's sort of three standard levels of roast. So when you're shopping for coffee and the you know in the supermarket or in in your fancy coffee shop it'll say you know things like dark roast and that's all all depends on what level you heat or roast the beans to and obviously where you stop in those places the flavor development is going to be different it's to say it's not just coffee beans or chocolate beans it's everything that you decide to roast whether that's nuts or cereals or flour everything as you kind of roast it to a darker and darker level you start to get very similar flavor notes so the reason that your coffee and chocolate combination seems right is because they've got quite an overlap of flavor that's being created by the process rather than is actually if you like naturally in the product how did you go about researching overlapping flavor molecules Talk to us a little bit about flavour molecules, what they are and how you learned about them. And sometimes you can get a, a fl an overlapping flavour molecule in perhaps surprising combinations. So what flavour, I suppose it's useful to understand the difference between taste and flavour. Taste is what you experience on your taste buds. So what you learn in biology at school, you've got these little buds in your on your tongue and then elsewhere in your mouth and to some degree down down all the way down into your stomach and they tell you whether something's bitter sweet sour 
uh, salty or umami. Flavor is something completely different. Flavor is the thing that you lose when you have a cold because your olfactory bulb swells up so much and, it, and the flavor molecules. So that's basically that's what makes up the fragrance of food. And it goes up your nose, either directly up your nostrils or up the back of your chewing, up the back of your throat, up to your olfactory bulb. So flavor molecules, they're, they're what's in the air when you're, when you're cooking and you can, you know, all the smell of garlic being released, that is the flavor molecules in the garlic that are going through the processes of maybe of being cooked or uh, being roasted. Uh, and you, you can smell them as they change. The, I suppose, one way of experiencing a flavor molecule is to take a, a leaf of basil and take a bite of it and think about what it tastes like. And one thing that should be, as long as basil is quite decent, one of the very pronounced flavor molecules in basil is called eugenol, and it tastes like a clove. And the reason it tastes like you know, a clove, the spice, is because a clove is made of 85, its flavor is 85% of that molecule. Basil has a little bit less of it, but it can still have enough where you really, really notice the similarity. And so I was kind of fascinated when I was researching that particular flavor to find that in Liguria, housewives making pesto, if they thought that the basil was a bit kind of lacking in flavor, would add a pinch of brown clove to it. So next time you have a basil leaf, have a taste of it. And that's it. That's flavor molecules that kind of appear in one ingredient turning up in not just basil, but actually loads of things. So that particular flavor molecule you'll find in all spice berries. Um, it's created in um, the wood for barrels to age spirits and wines in. So you get a clove note maybe in your whiskey and you'll know that that's come not from um, the liquid that went into the barrel, but the barrel itself. So you find, you know, there are certain molecules like vanillin in vanilla that appears in lots and lots of different ingredients too. Nikki, you write with a sense of fun. So I'm thinking, for example, of when you describe kale, which you describe as a cold and heartless cabbage, or when you describe papaya in the context of papaya and lime. And by the way, I was introduced to that a few years ago, and it is just delicious because the papaya is quite sweet. It's not that sweet, but it's quite sweet. And then you have the tanginess of the lime, which at least if you're told that it brings out the flavour, it probably feels as though it does. I don't. Anyway, I, I love the experience of that. But I love the way you described papaya because you said poor old papaya, because it has to sit next to mango on the shelf in the supermarket. It's like having to sit next to Christy Turlington on a yacht. Before I ask you my substantive question about papaya, have you ever sat next to Christy Turlington on a yacht? Oh, I felt like I have, though. <laughs> So tell us about papaya, because it's perhaps not one of our most popular fruits, or not a fruit that that many people will try, but it is an absolutely brilliant fruit, isn't it? Uh, it's a complicated fruit from a flavour point of view, because I think I say in the book, it's like if rhubarb is a vegetable pretending to be a fruit, papaya is the inverse. Because the thing about papaya is that the seeds in the middle have got a, a molecule in them, which makes them taste like cabbage or like horseradish. It makes it taste like a member of the cruciferous family, which is why it's in the place that it is on the flavor wheel. So it makes papaya a little bit tricky to like for some 
Uh, I mean, as you know, a lot of papaya gets eaten raw. So actually when it's raw, you can't necessarily distinguish it so much. But as it ripens and the seeds turn black, then they it tends to be a bit more noticeable. And the thing about that lime combination is not only is papaya sort of missing some of that balancing sourness that often makes a fruit really delicious. So, you know, an apple is usually a really lovely mixture of sweet and sour. Papaya can be quite blandly sweet. And because it's got that slightly funky note to it, if you add lime juice, not only do you add the sourness that's lacking in the fruit itself, which makes it kind of anything that's too sweet gets boring to eat. So you add, you know, add some sourness, it becomes more interesting. But the lime juice also, it's, it's got, you know, it's a tropical fruit. It's got a lot of flavor there. It's got lovely floral flavor to it. So it kind of makes up a bit of bouquet as well, not just the sourness, but it's adding kind of a bit more flavor, which tends to hide, tends to mask some of the, some of the, the mustardy kind of flavor of the seeds. So one of the things I enjoy about papaya is the texture. And I don't know whether the right word is consistency, but it's the feel of it in your mouth, the sort of sense of the physical sense of it. You're much better at describing things than I am. But texture is really important, isn't it, in how we experience foods. You mentioned, obviously, flavour. You've talked about the difference between flavour and taste. But texture is important, isn't it? Uh, yeah, completely. And in fact, when people say they don't like in a certain ingredient, it's usually because they don't like the texture much more than they don't like the flavour. So a lot of the things that people don't like, stringy rhubarb, stringy celery, you know, things that are squelchy, you know, things that don't feel quite right in their mouths. I think you would like papaya and avocado, which I say in the book, it sort of makes a smoothie that's more like a plushy because you get two velvety ingredients together, it can be quite unusual and quite, you know, quite pleasant, quite sort of for two healthy ingredients, if you like. It's got quite a sort of comforting, uh, indulgent kind of texture. I'm really fascinated by why we don't like certain things. I mean, of course, you have some people who are fussier eaters than others. But although I can eat pretty much anything and everything that is savoury, in dessert, I start to trip up in big ways. So I cannot eat red, purple, pink, black fruit stuff. I can have raspberries if they are in their original form. But I cannot have raspberry ice cream, strawberry ice cream. I cannot have any sort of cooked fruit. It's interesting. Have you ever tried to fight it? Have you ever tried to undo it? Well, that's a really good question, and maybe a couple of times. And another example, by the way, and, and, and this brings me to another question, is dried fruit. I mean, don't ever give me a raisin or a sultana or dates. You know, what about I just, a currant? <laughs> absolutely not. But that doesn't mean, like you with your mushrooms and your ability to write about mushrooms, that I'm not interested in. And by the way, I can see if my mum made a beautiful crumble of some sort, you know, I could see the point of it. I could see why people might love it because the smell, the crumbliness of it. But on the dry fruit, just talk us through, through a, a bit of that. Cause it's an important part of the book, of course, raisins, dates and so forth. Tell us a bit about the fun that you can have with those and their flavours. Firstly, I'm not inviting you over. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. You crossed off my guest list, Matthew. You're too fussy dried fruit um well I think one of the things that I really loved about writing this book was writing the date chapter because we've got to a point where if you want to buy dates in this country you pretty much and you go to the supermarket you pretty much can buy two types of date and when you look into the number of dates 
that there are in, you know, in comparison to what we can buy in the UK. It's just, it's so, it's such a shame. You know, there's a, they're beautiful, naturally sweet. Uh, I, you know, well, I'm not going to be able to sell them to you, but there are so many different types. But, you know, I went to a Turkish supermarket in London and came home with 10 different types of date, all very different. And there is one called the Ajwa date. I don't know if I pronounce that particularly nicely, but it's spelled A-J-W-A. And it's it's really small and it's sort of round and very dark and kind of much thicker and chewier than a normal date. So it kind of lasts in your mouth like a not quite a licorice toffee. It's not as dark to be licorice, but if you like a slightly dark treacle kind of quality to it. And, you know, and there are lighter dates that have. There's one kind of date, and I would have to look up the name of my book. I'm not very good at remembering 400 pages of, of information, unfortunately. But they look like little pints of Guinness. They're kind of dry to the point that the top has kind of got a sugary, crusted top to it. There's just a whole wealth of different varieties out there. There are some very beautiful books written about them in the early 20th century where people will go over to uh, explore the different date oasis how do you say oasis uh, and come back with these descriptions of dates of all different kind of colors and sizes and flavors when it comes to raisins and sultanas and currants I suppose I had kind of always bound them up together in my head and then getting into researching them for this book just seeing just how different they are so raisins and sultanas come from the same type of fruit but with um, sultanas tend to be treated after they're dried so they are kind of given a treatment in the same way that apricots you know the dried apricots that you buy in the shop that are bright orange have been treated with sulfur to kind of keep them soft and supple and much fruitier much more like a haribo sweet whereas the the sort that you might buy in the health food shop which are dark brown because they're untreated your raisins tend to be more like that so they've got that dark brown they're much more natural and kind of in they're much more sugary in their flavor, whereas the sultan has got a kind of fruitiness. And then currant comes from a different type of grape and a, a red grape. And so they're very black and they're very small and they have a very different kind of flavor to them. They're much more vinous. So they taste much more like a kind of got like a red wine flavor perhaps a little bit more bitter a little bit more sophisticated tasting and also much more amenable to being baked so if you think about the biscuit aisle in the supermarket you can think about things like garibaldi biscuits all these different biscuits that have currants in them but they don't have raisins because raisins tend to go really kind of hard and they tend to burn in in the oven so you have these three things that we tend to perhaps because often they're sold in a bag together as a mixed dried fruit, but you just start to unpack what's different about them. And I think that's what's unusual about my books in a way is, is looking at these things a bit more close up to try and understand what they actually are rather than just taking them for granted. One of the fun or interesting things about flavour, about taste, about food is looking for differences perhaps or experiencing differences between cultures or countries 
in the way that they produce a certain food. So I'm thinking of hummus, for example. You know, you might get different hummus from Lebanon to the hummus you get in Israel, or you might get different falafel from Lebanon to the falafel you get somewhere else in the Middle East. And I wonder whether you're conscious of, when you're exploring flavours, you're conscious of origin, you're conscious of where the different flavours might come from and whether and whether different countries, different cultures have a different slant on, on what they produce. Yeah, of course. And you have to be really thoughtful about how things are included in the book. So yeah, I mean, you could write a whole book, couldn't you, about hummus? I mean, I'm not sure how many people would buy it, but you could write a whole book about hummus. And, and so many of the things that I include, because obviously I cast my net very broadly for the books because that's going to give the chapters variation and interest in how one culture might use food is very different to how, you know, some some people might use something in a sweet guise and some people might use it in savoury guise. So you want to always reflect a kind of a breadth because you're trying to do the ingredient, um, you know, trying to present the ingredient in the most interesting possible way. I don't tend to have to get into details of recipes because the book doesn't really allow for that so much. I'm very aware that when I'm writing, my subject is flavour. And so that is the thing that I need to concentrate on all the time. So you won't necessarily notice it, but, you know, I don't talk about health. I don't talk about food politics. It's very much like this is the, you know, it's pretty much the only book that's about flavour. So I'm concentrating on that particular thing. So rather maybe rather than talking about all the different types of hummus we can talk about what does chickpea taste like and how many different types like major types of chickpea are there and what happens I think when I do talk about hummus in the latest book I'm talking about finding a recipe where sesame oil is used instead of tahini so that was quite interesting to try that and report back on whether that was a success and also a rather posh chef who I think used cashew butter instead of tahini and what that's like. So I'm more interested in kind of presenting the reader with flavour options and describing what they're like and hopefully getting them to think about, you know, what is in their cupboard? Do they want to try to make something like a hummus? Because it won't be a hummus if it's made with pistachio butter, it will be something completely different but you know getting it's about opening people's minds up to try things rather than necessarily you know reporting on what hummus can be like around the world I suppose. A fruit that fascinates me is lemon and I love the fact that it can be used in savory in a savory environment but also it can be used and is is used extensively in desserts and puddings so for example I will stick a lemon or half a lemon into a chicken when I roast a chicken and maybe squirt a bit of the lemon on top along with all sorts of other herbs and pepper and you talk about peppercorns in the book and pepper is something I just love. But lemons can also be used in, in lemon possets or lemon cheesecake, lemon mousse. You know, I absolutely love that. Something about the combination of the bitterness of it with, and maybe even the colour of it. And colour, we haven't talked much about, but the colour of it, the mixing in of that with cream. Talk to us just a little bit about lemon and your experience of lemon. We have to work on keeping the lemon chapter short because it's very, very, it's very easy to use, as you note. So you can use it for sweet and savoury dishes very easily because it is not particularly sweet. Uh, there's bitterness in the zest, there's sourness in the juice, 
It's very beautiful. You can bring out the flavor when you sweeten it. Don't really get a lot of flavor in lemon juice until you, you know, add quite a bit of sugar to it and then it will show its beauty. I mean, a lot of fruits are like that. They are like rhubarb, for example, um, dependent on sugar bringing, teasing out all their flavor. The thing about lemon, I think, is the sourness of the juice is the thing. It's quite neutral in its flavor. You can squeeze the juice into pretty much any dish. And some chefs really do do this, like just squeeze a little bit of lemon juice almost as naturally as you would put salt and pepper on at the end of the dish in order to kind of make it seem juicier, make the flavor seem more vibrant, bring the whole thing into balance. It's uh, it's no accident, I don't think, that a lot of chefs and a lot of food writers, when you see their kitchens, there's a bowl of lemons in them. I'd be interested to hear you sum up your relationship or your understanding of seeds. We are talking earlier about things we don't like. Associations, I think, can be incredibly powerful, perhaps in whether we like or dislike certain things. And poppy seed, I think, is something instinctively I love the sound of, partly because it makes me think of poppies and maybe fields of poppies in the south of France. Talk to us about seeds. You talk about sesame seeds, poppy seeds, as I've said. How important can they be? I think what I love about poppy seeds and sesame seeds is that they are just so incredibly tiny. And it only takes one to get caught in between your teeth and come loose about an hour later after, say, you've eaten a bagel and there it still is. And you get this massive explosion of flavor. I mean, I think it's partly because those tiny seeds contain a lot of oil. It's one of the reasons that they tend to go rancid very quickly. So you have to either use them, in, keep them in the freezer or use them up quite quickly. But they're really, really powerful. And the thing about the poppy seed is you, you and I probably know them most from being used on the top of breads and buns and things. But if you go to India, where they make lots of sauces from kind of crushed poppy seeds, or there are loads and loads of Eastern European cake fillings, pudding fillings made with thick black poppy seeds, all kind of crushed up together, get a very different view of what those ingredients taste like when they're used in that way. So the poppy, for poppy seeds in particular, it's quite dark the flavor it's quite I always think of it tasting a little bit like a little bit cardboardy when it's ground up uh, so you tend to they tend to add quite a lot of flavor to that tend to add something like almond or orange zest or lemon zest to kind of enhance the flavor because yeah a little seed a little uncracked seed has got quite a different flavor to how they are when they've been kind of crushed together on mass. I enjoy using things unexpectedly. And I'll go back to roast chicken because it's something I cook quite a bit of. And I understand we should be eating less meat. Of course I do. But I might put a bit of cinnamon on. And I, that might sound sort of a bit bonkers, but you can have it on cinnamon buns. But you can use it in savoury context as well. Just mention for us cinnamon, if you would, and spices more generally. Well, I think if you like, if, you, if it's the flavour of cinnamon you're quite attracted to, then here is a good point to look it up in one of the books and because it's in both and find something that you haven't tried with and maybe something that would be interesting for you is to try it with green beans so in Italy ground cinnamon might be used with beans to make a, like a pesto sauce so it's ground together with cooked green beans some cream a bit of parmesan and some cinnamon and then cook some pasta 
put some fresh green beans in there and then use the sauce on the pasta and the green beans when you strain them together and maybe mix in some walnuts and you have a beautiful dish. It's quite interesting to me because that mixture of green beans, green beans have a curious taste because they tend to taste raw even when they're cooked. And then you add cinnamon to it and you have, it comes together and they do taste a little bit basil-like. So you create, because basil has a flavor of kind of leafy green that the beans have, and obviously we know that basil has a sort of cinnamony, clovey, spicy taste, you're kind of making things that have echoes of things. And if you already like a flavor, then you're more likely to be disposed towards something if it's got similar kind of similar kind of flavor notes to it. If you like your pepper, I would recommend that you get some allspice berries. Try and get Jamaican ones because everyone says that they are the best. And uh, they might not fit in your grinder, but you can get a grinder that's big enough to take allspice berries. And the combination of the two is just terrific. So you have all the things that you like about the pepper, which is, you know, it's very woody. It's very pine-like, that freshness that you're grinding straight onto countless dishes. But then the allspice, it's called allspice because the flavor molecules in in the berries are the same as clove, the same as cinnamon, the same as nutmeg. So you're, what you can do to the pepper by adding allspice to it is kind of broaden it out and make it, you know, give it some kind of sense of sweetness because your brain is going to associate cinnamon and clove and nutmeg with sweet things as well. But it just, but it's at quite a low level. So it just makes the pepper taste like it's really special, like it's come from somewhere you know, really, really exotic. It's perfectly possible, by the way, that I was confusing cinnamon with a, with another powdery, orange powdery thing that I've been putting on my roast chicken. What would that be if I am confusing it? Can you think? Uh, is it hot? No. Is it turmeric? Which is kind of more yellow, but possible. I don't think it is. Maybe it was cinnamon. I mean, but I, but then maybe it wasn't. I'll have to. I'll have to have. A, I'll have to have a look later. As you can tell, I'm absolutely not an expert in any of this. But part of it is discovery, isn't it? Part of it is enthusiasm. Part of it is getting excited about trying things. And you're at the heart of your book. Of course, you've got the core ingredients, but it's so much about it's so much about mixing things, isn't it? And experimentation. Yeah, I mean, uh, there are things like, I mean, there's coffee in yogurt, which I have to say, I put off trying for so long, because I thought it sounded so disgusting. And then I made it up. And it's now one of my favorite flavors of yogurt. And I can make it up. So it's got, you know, it's not all sweet and sugary and unpleasant, like a lot of the yogurts you can buy. It's a really, if you like hazelnut yogurt, you will probably like coffee yogurt. There's something like pine nut and raisin you know you may not think to put those two things together I know you won't think of putting those two things together but they can be you know a mixture of pine nuts and raisins can be added to you know like a garnish to lots of different vegetable side dishes or to like vegetable pastas and they kind of they just lift everything they add you know little nuggets of sweetness and like toasty I mean Pine nuts can have a cinnamon kind of taste to them too, but so they have a little spiciness, a little resinousness to their flavor. Just lift certain things. And I think the book is, it's not just all the books, aren't just about one dish. They're about adding little touches to things that make them a bit more exciting. I'm a big fan of pine nuts in salad. And actually it makes me think that weirdly, there is one fruit that I can tolerate in savory environments and that is pomegranates. And I don't know whether it's because they're slightly bitter perhaps or whether because of the texture, because they're small and unthreatening, I don't know. But pine nuts and and pomegranates, I think as you say, really can lift a salad or other dishes as well. The thing about pomegranate is my view is that the pomegranate has a bit more in common with the tomato than it does with 
the kind of fruity berries, even though it, it's kind of has been presented to us historically, you know, in a fruit context. And of course, now, thanks to Yoto Matagalengi, we, you know, we garnish a lot of things, a lot of savory dishes with pomegranate. But actually, if you buy some decent pomegranate juice and taste it, you might notice that it's kind of, it's quite, it's got its savory side too. It makes a very good sauce mixed with crushed walnuts. It makes really great salsas and salads. I think, you know, sometimes I think it's slightly better in a savory context. Try it mixed in with tomato juice, if you like that, 50-50 to make a Bloody Mary. It's really beautiful. You mentioned tomatoes, Nikki. Tomatoes, I, I personally have an ambiguous relationship with, but you could do so many things with them, can't you? You could cut them up, you know, little little cherry tomatoes and mix them in with creamy burrata for a sort of spring or summer dish, or you could cook them up for the winter for winter dishes or probably all year round as well. But there's a real variety, not just within the tomato family, but in terms of what you can do with them. Uh, I suppose my interest in the difference in tomato flavour tends to be the difference between tin tomatoes and fresh tomatoes. So with the tin tomato, because it's been pasteurised, because it's actually been cooked already before it hits the tin, you get this very different flavour, you get quite a sulphurous note to tin tomatoes. And although it doesn't sound very nice in theory, I think it's what makes them really nice in practice when you cook that. It just has a little certain savouriness, the sulphurness, the sulphurousness that we kind of associate with shellfish, similar kind of uh, note to it. And I think it's one of the reasons why you can just, you know, simmer a couple of tins of tomatoes, perhaps with a bit of garlic, and it just tastes really, really simply amazing. It's quite a different flavour to a fresh tomato that you might slice and put in, you know, in a salad or just have a side dish with uh, nothing but a little oil and vinegar on it. The there's one thing in the book which is a sandwich of tomato and lettuce and mayonnaise on a toasted white bread and it's just that basic and I picked it up from a famous American writer not food writer just you know a, a journalist who just ate the sandwich all the time when he was a kid and talked about it in such brilliant terms that I had to try it and when I tried it I think I ate it for lunch for about ten days following because I just couldn't I just couldn't stop eating it, it was so great. You mentioned just a little earlier, Jotam Ottolenghi, and your first flavour book was one of his best cookbooks of all time. He's he's written glowingly as well about the flavour thesaurus, more flavours. I should say that you won the winner for that first flavour book, the flavour thesaurus. You won the best food book, Andre Simon Award. You won the Guild of Food Writers Best First Book Award. Do you meet top chefs? Do you meet top cooks? Do you meet top people in the food industry? I'm thinking... Just for example, of have you met Yotam and and have you sort of considered collaborating and have you have you met Heston Blumenthal because he's famous for experimenting with food, isn't he? <laughs> um, I haven't met Heston and now he lives in the south of France. Unless my life takes a turn for the more glamorous, I guess that's not going to happen. Um, I have met Yotam because he is. You know, he's so amazing. He can do a tour of theatres. And people turn out to see him like he's a rock star. And he asked me to interview him, a couple of those, which was really great. So I got to meet him. But no, I, you know what? I don't tend to hang out in with chefs and um, food writers because mainly because my writing life is, you know, I, I work full time on the books and then I have eight-year-old twins. So I don't tend to have that much of a wildly social life. Tell us about garlic. What would you like to know about garlic? 
I'd like to know how you think about it and when there's too much garlic. Can you have too much garlic? And <laughs> I can have too much garlic. I made the, I mean, I used to always love the chicken and 40 cloves of garlic, the French classic recipe. And then when I, uh, I once made it and got a taxi to my advertising agency the next morning and I was in a, a black cab and he had the glass partition between us uh, closed. But when I got out, he said, even with the partition, I've got to tell you, you stink, love, is what he said to me. Um, and so I, in my office, we had a two-way mirror. So I had the meeting that I had to have behind the two-way mirror and then got another taxi home. I just had to go and sit it out until I didn't stink. So I, I know a lot of people say at the beginning of that recipe, it doesn't, it won't make you smell, but I, I would take that with a pinch of salt um the thing that i the thing that i think is really interesting about garlic is that it tends to be a you know a flavor enhancer of savory foods particularly meat and fish it, and and then other kind of sulfurous vegetables that would be corn fresh corn in particular not really tin corn and sulfurous stuff like cabbages and sprouts it tends to emphasize that kind of a certain kind of deliciousness that we associate with the sulfur. Uh, I talked about that before with the canned tomatoes. It, so it enhances in that way. It picks up this flavor. It's also a flavor that's associated with truffles uh, and kind of it, it just exaggerates that, which is, I think is why it makes things so lip smacking and why actually something as simple as garlic bread is just so incredibly delicious. It, it presses a lot of buttons that maybe things like grilled prawns or, um, really nice fried red mullet or something. It's got it's, it, it has reminiscence of that. We hear quite a bit about tofu eaters, don't we? I mean, tofu has become political. You write about tofu in the book. Tell us about tofu. Well, there are many types of tofu, and I think uh, well, I've written one of the entries, which is really it's kind of describes the ladder of tofu appreciation. Because so I spoke to a guy who makes. I don't know if he's the only person that makes fresh tofu in this country, but he's got a, uh, you know, he makes tofu in Brick Lane and ships it to the great restaurants and to places like Planet Organic. And he took me through how it's made and how the flavour develops. And it kind of, it did change my appreciation of tofu. I mean, I quite like it anyway, because I'm, I really enjoy eating vegetarian food. But I suppose what he taught me was that you could enjoy tofu for what it is and the kind of things that you might eat with it in particular bringing the conversation back to the start emphasis a little bit of miso so if you've got nice tofu like he makes then you might cut it up it's called clean bean by the way cut it up into cubes and just put a tiny bit of miso on the top of each cube and try it like that and actually let let yourself appreciate the little you know the the flavors are subtle they're you know they're kind of You'll find a bit grassy, maybe a little tiny sort of note of softly boiled egg. I think it can be a bit mushroomy. It can have a little bit, maybe a note of straw. If you're training your taste buds, I think that's one of the nice things about the books is they are not really just trying to impart you some information or tell you what you can do to use up, you know, half a bag of green beans in your kitchen. It's about trying to get you to appreciate things a bit more, learn how to taste, find some words in order to express those flavours. And 
tofu might be quite an advanced version of that but it's but you know but it's interesting they are different try a few different ones next to each other and appreciate the fact that they have got different characters you talk about words and i'm like to know whether you got you derive pleasure from the writing of the book and give us a sense of how long it took you to write it but just the the craftsmanship of the writing itself and somehow there's a meta point in there isn't there about the fascination with flavors and how they work together and then perhaps you know you're really interested in you're really interested in how words fit together and using words in interesting ways yeah I mean I I definitely went into this into the first one I'd never written any before anything before I wrote the first book but I went into it as somebody who was interested in writing it's certainly a very big reader very interested you know I I I've always liked, you know, reading poetry. And so what I wanted to do, I think I think I, I had sort of thought at the beginning, I'm going to be collecting lots of other people's phrases about flavour pairings, and it turned out there was almost nothing. And so it became clear very quickly that I was going to have to get in the ring, so to speak, and that the best way to do it was to, you know, I had done a wine course, which had taught me a little bit about how to express my uh observations on flavor and then it was just you know it's kind of it is part of the fun of it it's like you've got to make this 400 page book about flavor various enough for people to want to read it and interesting enough and it's a book it should be entertaining and it's a great subject and you know in the end it doesn't matter if you don't like this particular flavor combination or you don't agree with what I'm saying about it if it's opening your mind and if it's getting you to kind of try things in different ways or use something up because isn't it great to kind of like explore things in order not to waste stuff. Um, yeah, I feel very excited about that. You can hear just my energy gets, my energy level goes up. Okay, I'm going to ask you the sort of slightly naff question that people might ask me. You know, they might say, who's your favourite ever interviewee? But if you had to pick one of the ingredients that you work with in the book, and you had to use that for the next year as your dominant ingredient. I'm not going to say you can only have one ingredient, of course, but if that's your dominant ingredient or your most frequently used ingredient, what would it be? Oh, I don't know. Would it be, um, well, I mean, if you had to use something a lot, would it be, I don't know, cauliflower, but would you get bored of cauliflower? Yes, you get very bored of cauliflower. Okay, well, maybe then lentils. I think lentils would be really great because you can do so much with them. And I just, I do kind of love them. Nikki Segler, it's been brilliant to ask you 20 questions. Thank you for sticking with me through my likes and dislikes. Fascinating your book. It's fascinating hearing you talk about it. And I wish you great success with it. Thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me.